Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. My guest today is Connor Oberst. Oberst is one of the most prolific singer-songwriters of the last 20 years. Best known for his work with Bright Eyes, Oberst has also collaborated with Flea, Jim James, Alt-J, and Phoebe Bridgers. His most recent song, Miracle of Life, featuring Bridgers, raised money for Planned Parenthood and opposed Trump's nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Ober sat for an interview with me this fall as the first in a series for Jacobin Magazine. An edited and condensed transcript will be posted to Jacobin's site shortly. We talked a bit about politics. Ober made public stances against the Iraq War and supported Bernie Sanders, and a lot about music. I've been a big fan of Bright Eyes and Connor's solo work for years now, so it was a real treat for me to get the chat with him. As always, you can find me on Twitter at GarrisonLovely. Here is Connor Oberst. Connor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, it's nice to talk to you. Tell me your name. I'm sorry. Yeah, Garrison. 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 Yeah. Nice, nice to meet you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm a freelance journalist uh, doing this for Jacobin Magazine as a first in a series. And um, yeah, just uh, also a big follower of your work and uh, really excited to have the opportunity to chat. Cool. Uh, where are you coming to us from right now? I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, nice. Yeah. Nice. How, how are things out there? You know, it's it's getting a little weird, you know, as everywhere. Um, I was here for the first, I guess, four months of the of quarantine. And then I, I have a house here and I have a house in Omaha where I'm from. So I went back to Omaha for a couple months in the summer. And that was trippy just because they were taking it a lot less seriously there than they were here, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and then co- coming here, um, now things are getting like really bad back in Omaha as far as the COVID stuff goes. So uh, yeah, it feels like you can't really, can't really win, but yeah. um, just trying to, trying to keep it positive, you know, stay, yeah. uh, stay on the sunny side of the street as much as possible, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny <laughs> hearing that coming from you based on your music. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if people associate like Connor Burst or Bright Eyes with like the sunny side of the street too much. Yeah, but. yeah. Are you in, uh, uh, where are you? I'm in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, yeah, cool. so th- things were pretty bad in like March and April. Uh, but now mm-hmm. New York is actually one of the safer places to be in America. Yeah, I know. I've I've been here. I've, I've, I used to live there and I still have lots of friends in New York. And yeah, it's, I've, I've been hearing it's kind of nice. Like everyone's sort of or a lot of people left the city and it's pretty like mellow, which is great to hear. Yeah. Yeah. There's this whole series of like, Oh, New York city is dead. Uh, articles that have come out. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, you walk around and there's so much vibrancy and and so many people like kind of out in the streets, out in the parks. Um, obviously a ton of people are hurting a lot of like, you know, restaurants and like local businesses that people really like are are gone, Mm -hmm. probably not coming back. Um, but I, I do think the, uh, the rumors of New York city's death have been greatly exaggerated. (laughs) I believe that. Um, yeah. And, and how has your experience overall been with the pandemic? Um, I mean, I've been trying to, like I said, really take it as seriously as possible. Like the first four months didn't really see pretty much anyone just at the house. Um, and then, uh, you know, I've been fortunate um, not to lose anyone in my immediate family, but have, uh, you know, like so many people, um, 
my friend lost his dad. My other friend lost his mom. Um, a couple kind of friends of friends. So, you know, it's a really, it's obviously such a real thing and it's, it's just frustrating. I mean, I don't know how deep we want to get into it, but yeah, so much of it drives me crazy. Just what people are, you know, how irresponsible people are being with other, other people's lives because, you know, the truth is, is like, you don't know who it's going to touch. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, most likely you will be fine, but, but you know, so-and-so's grandma is not going to be, you know? And, and that's like the, you know, that's what's, just I think so hard for people to get their heads around because I don't think it's like people are necessarily bad people like when I see like my friends back in Omaha and people are kind of like still going to bars and like hugging each other and you know and for the most part they're responsible but I'm it's just like I don't know it's it is a really difficult thing to until it hits home you know it's a difficult thing to to really appreciate the gravity of I think yeah yeah, for sure. And it's it's tough seeing a lot of people of like my generation who are looking at the statistics and they're like, oh, if I get it, I'll be fine. Uh, yeah. I'm like 20, whatever. And like, you know, very few people die. But there's like long term effects that we don't really know about enough yet. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people who got SARS got really bad long term effects like fatigue mm-hmm. and depression and yeah. like, lack of like taste and smell with COVID. Um, and it's also, yeah, you could just spread it to people who aren't as lucky, um, who are immunocompromised, who aren't as young. Oh. Um, or you could just get really unlucky. And, and I, I wish more people were taking it seriously as well. Yeah. And then if you, yeah, once you start thinking about all the economic things, you know, I've, I've never in my life have I, you know, known so many people like on unemployment and really like, you know, I mean, I, most of them, are, a lot of my friends are obviously musicians and work in the service industry. And it's just, you know, I don't know, I guess it's like, part of it's like counting your blessings. It's like, I have a roof over my head. I have like food in my fridge and there's just so many people that on top of all the health scares, you know, are completely terrified about like what they're going to eat or if they're going to like lose their apartment, you know? So it's, I can't imagine that level to have the, just the stress of the pandemic and then to have that financial stress on top of it. I mean, it's, it's, that's enough to, to break a lot of, a lot of people's spirits, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, McConnell just adjourned the Senate until after the election. So there won't be any additional yeah. relief and it's, yeah. it's pretty fucked. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into politics in a bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess I just wanted to uh, start off with a, a story of like, I think the first time I really connected with a, a Bright Eye song, um, I was uh, doing acid with a friend of mine in college <laughs> and we were in a park and uh, at the bottom of everything came on. We were having a conversation and like the spoken word intro um, kind of like took over and we both like stopped and just listened to the song straight through. Um, and it's just like this incredible, bizarre story of like, you know, these people on a plane, there's a massive mechanical failure. And then it's like this apocalyptic folk rock at them. Um, and yeah, I guess like, could you just tell me a little bit about like what your mindset was when you wrote the song and yeah, like what you were trying to do with it? Sure. I mean, we have... Um... I guess a tradition you would say for all the bright eyes records of starting them with some kind of, uh, you know, uh, slightly pretentious, either, you know, sound collage or in that case, it's just me telling a story. Uh, and yeah, we just have always done that. And to me, it's, it's sort of like in a way it's, well, in one sense, it's setting the stage for, okay, this is, 
you know, uh, they all thematically like tie into what's going to happen on the record. But also it's like a way to, um, I don't know, like test people's attention spans and be like, okay, if you can kind of like walk through this weird doorway with us, then there's going to be, you know, all this music on the other side and like a whole record to hopefully it'll put you in a better mindset to kind of absorb whatever. Um, so for that one, since it was, um, that whole idea of that record was to make what we would consider like a seventies folk rock album. And it's funny to me, like some people, you know, that's definitely like the album of ours that the most people know or whatever, like most commercially successful, I guess. Um, and some people just think that's what our band sounds like. And all the other things we've done are like weird side experiments. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it's really not true. Like that was conceptually like intentional, like to make something we hadn't done before, which was a very, you know, traditional kind of sounding record. And let's get Emmylou Harris to sing on it and let's make, you know, whatever our, our weird version. Of course, like with all these things we try to do, it never ends up being like what we set out to do, which I think is also cool that there's a, there's always an element of, kind of failing what you're what you're going for so it doesn't sound like a jackson brown record or a Joni mitchell record or whatever because we're kind of weirdos and we, we couldn't do that if we wanted to or we you know we tried and so um yeah i guess the reason the story is told like that is it seemed like an organic way to get to have that intro quality um because a lot of the other records are more sound collage and weird effects that would yeah. probably have fit on that record. Yeah. And I also found a music video for it, which I didn't actually know existed. Um, uh, and yeah. it reminds me of like this genre of early YouTube videos where they recreated uh, songs based on the music video and just like did a very literal interpretation of it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is very funny. And and that's basically what happens. And like the song is so bizarre that like the video <laughs> is also really bizarre. And just like people are, you know, like making out on the plane as it goes down and like, you know, they're just like, having all these yeah. weird interactions and it, it's just really wonderful. Um, yeah, that's cool. Uh, Kat Sullen is her name, man. I haven't thought about her in years, but that was like such an old or like such a pre internet or whatever time. Like I remember at my first house, she had made a little short film for a song off lifted, which would have been a couple years before. Mm-hmm. And like, like I got like a VHS tape, like at my house like, and she was like an art student and I just, you know, I was like, put it in and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then but like just asked her, which it's nice. I feel like stuff like that doesn't happen that much anymore. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, the video is 240p. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's from a different era. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And, and so the new album, um, down in the weeds where the world once was the bright eyes album that came out a few months back as you mentioned, also has like this kind of uh, experimental like intro with a monologue uh, in Spanish by your ex-wife mm-hmm. and then a conversation uh, with your mother while you're on mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, can you just talk a bit about how that new album came together and then like how it was different from some of the stuff Bright Eyes has done in the past? Sure. Well, I think the biggest difference was, you know, nine years had passed. Um, and so, uh, Mike Mogus and Nate Walcott and I, I, you know, we're all just at different stages in our lives, I guess, than the last time we made a record. But in one sense, 
that should sound like it was more difficult than it was. I feel like once we started making the record, we did spend like two years making it. So um, there was a lot of time to revise ideas and think about things and cut songs and all of that. Um, But I would say, you know, it was a surprise to me that fundamentally our approach wasn't that different even after nine years, you know? Um, I just think that we maybe are, we're all a little better at what we do and a little more discerning because it's not like we stopped making music that whole time. We just didn't make a bright eyes record. So, um, and it was one of our intentions to, you know, we were aware we wanted it to sound like us in, you know, 2019 or whenever we were making it, but we also wanted it to like, if it sat on your shelf with the other Bright Eyes records, it would make sense. And, you know, it wouldn't sort of stand out like a source thumb. So we were kind of aware of the, I guess, the nostalgia in it and like, you know, pulling out some like old instruments that we used on past records. Like there's this thing called like a hammer dulcimer that, um, that Michael plays that, you know, we probably haven't put it on a recording since like 2002, but it was like, let's get out the hammer dulcimer. Like let's make it sound like a bright eye song, you know? And so just stuff like that, I guess just kind of aesthetic decisions and trying to like walk the tight rope of like, what does it mean to make a record, you know, at our age now, but also like, what does it mean to, to kind of be connected to, you know, cause we made a, we made a lot of records. Um, and you know, it's, I'm happy to say that, they mean something to, to people, you know, even the yeah. ones, even the ones that I kind of like feel a little cringy about, you know, it's like, they mean something to somebody out there. And I guess in a weird way, trying to be like cognizant of that or, you know, make something that hopefully they like and we like, and we can all like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, this is something I've seen in some of your other interviews where like a song that you might not have thought much of at the time, um, just becomes like a huge thing right like uh your most famous song is first day of my life which um it doesn't necessarily reflect like the bright eye sound like i, I love the song as well but like no at all it's like one of the biggest like outliers ever as far as all the music we made and yeah it's again it's like i feel like that stuff is really unpredictable like i think when artists attempt to like i don't know make things like the they think the the audience will like or go out of their way to like, I guess I'm just contradicting what I just said, but I guess like, um, but you know what I mean? Like to make, like just kind of recreate the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Um, I think that starts to get like, just as a fan of other people's music, that starts to wear on me. You know what I mean? Even bands I really like, it's like if they kind of keep making the same record, I'm not going to necessarily pay attention. Like, four yeah. records into their career, you know? Yeah. So I think you got to kind of keep it moving and, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of Father John Misty. who's also like a lyrically driven kind of like dark brooding, like indie artist. Like his oh, yeah. biggest song is called real love baby. And it's like, sounds kind of like a fifties, like pop song. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a good track, but like, it's totally different from like everything else he's made. Um, yeah. And it kind of, yeah. Think of that with you guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, I don't know. It's it just, I guess like, do you resent having to play those songs live or is it just like a thing like, yeah, this is connecting with people and like, we're happy to do it. 
Um, I would say that there's, you know, there's some songs that I think stand up and are, even if I can, even if the recordings of them embarrass me a little bit, like mostly it's like the sound in my voice. Cause I just, you know, I never was a trained singer by any means. And I just learned to sing from years of doing it. And so, yeah, I wonder if I hear, you know, if I hear a recording of me when I'm like 19 singing, it's like, it's not my favorite sound in the world, you know? <laughs> um, but the, the, the actually nice part about being able to play some of those old songs live is you get a chance to do it again and sort of sing, you know, either reinterpret it with the band because our band kind of always changes or, you know, just the sound, the, the sound of me singing it is, you know, I think uh, at least for me, I like it. I like it more. Maybe some fans would disagree, but, um, and then there are some songs that just, you know, I would, you know, I just, I don't have much interest in, in, in playing them at all, you know? So, but we have so many songs that that's okay. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's cool. Um, I, and I want to switch gears a little bit into, you know, politics and, and your music. Um, and I guess I'll just start off with like, when did you first have a sense that your opinions on politics were different from like normal opinions on politics or the, the mainstream? Well, I honestly didn't pay much attention to politics until um, I remember very specifically, I was on tour in Europe um, and it was after the Bush Gore election and I was just, I just was confused. I was like, wait a second, you know, this isn't lining up with my civics classes. And why don't, you know, like, why <laughs> don't we come to law? <laughs> yeah. Like, how, why do we not have a president yet? And, you know, the hanging chads and all that business. And like, um, so, yeah, I guess I started, you know, reading more consuming more news and then you know yeah i don't know how old you are but um and then of course 9 11 happened i was you know i was 21 and um yeah i had just made a we had just made the first uh desperacitos record and you know it's kind of uh i would say it's uh you know slightly anti capitalism i wouldn't say it's anti-american but you know it touches on that and we had that was the next thing coming out and it was you know that was when there was an american flag on every house yeah and it was a pretty inopportune time to go like sing uh punk rock songs about uh (laughs) you know whatever um and but but we did it we put the record out i mean i remember playing like uh the old uh knitting factory back when it was down on like church street or whatever, you know, like lower Manhattan mm-hmm. and, ha- and having to, uh, you know, park our van or like go through like a checkpoint and wow. everything. I mean, everything's crazy. Like the Pentagon was still like smoldering and I mean, it was like fresh. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. So then that was just kind of like, after that, I sort of, you know, like a lot of people, I was terrified and confused and felt like one of the ways to deal with that is to just educate myself and read more and just try to have like a, a wider understanding. And then also 
the fact that as for my job, I was always going to Europe and other places that weren't the United States. And you end up having conversations, you know, you kind of end up, you know, in a way having to like defend things that are happening, you know, with journalists or with, you know, so it just got to the point where it, it kind of entered into my life in a way that I felt like I had to form opinions. And then the more you learn, I guess, you know, the more I felt, um, you know, obviously the lead up to the Iraq war, I was living in New York and that was like a very intense time. And then the second, you know, the second election and, and, and having Bush get reelected. I mean, that was another, those all felt like huge things to me. Yeah. And they were, they were huge things to me. <laughs> I, think, I think you're but, right. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, they were like, yeah, I was very formative. Um, and I was, you know, I was living in New York. I was hanging out with, you know, whatever you want to call them, crazy, crazy lefties and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, coming from Nebraska, it was a very different world, you know, than like what I grew up in. And my parents are liberal, but um, it's it's Nebraska, you know, it's a very red state. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how would you describe your views now? Mm. Well, I mean, I feel like the, it seems like the, the more I learn about it, like, of course there's, there's these big, big ticket items like a presidential election, but honestly, you know, I know it's a cliche thing to say, but it does feel like local politics are probably the most, the thing you can do to most change your life and your neighbor's lives. You know, it's not very sexy, but that, you know, um, just, I don't know, it took me a long time to really like kind of know anything about the, the state legislature in Nebraska or, or the city council, you know, obviously LA is a whole nother ball game. I haven't lived here that long. So I'm still like, you know, I'm learning about things and I, I, I vote in Nebraska still. So there's a lot of it where it's like, can't vote for all the propositions on the ticket and blah, yeah. blah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's, one thing I've learned, I mean, I think uh, for better or worse, I mean, of course I would love like a, a viable third party, fourth party, you know? Um, I just think that collectively the trauma of the Trump years, I don't, I think it's going to take a while before we fully understand. And, you know, I voted obviously like democratic, like down the line, just cause I'm just like, it's just these people are too crazy, but I noticed you're wearing a Bernie shirt, yeah, yeah. you know, um, you know, I'm sure I'm not the first person to share this opinion, but yeah, Joe Biden wouldn't have been my first choice. <laughs> um, I, I, I like Bernie a lot. I, I gave him money. Um, uh, I also, you know, I also, I really liked, or still like, um, Elizabeth Warren. I think that like, she would have been an amazing president cause she's very thoughtful and, kind of is like, seems like in the middle between maybe what Bernie would do and what someone, you know, more establishment would do, I suppose. Um, But uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's helpful. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm still a little bit upset 
to say the least with uh, Elizabeth Warren and, and yeah. some of the specific decisions she made yeah. during the campaign. Um, but yeah, prior to this cycle, I, I also had a pretty favorable view of her yeah. compared to all the other senators that exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and I guess like, so uh, I want to talk a bit about Desa Parcitos um, because that, that music is definitely the most political that, that you've put out. Um, yeah. And you have a 2015 album, um, Paola, which uh, I really liked. And uh, there's just like some, some pretty, you're, you're spitting fire there. Um, yeah. and, and one song in particular, like really stuck out to me was uh, Maricopa spelled like KKK uh, uh, about Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And like, yeah. you're talking about family separation and, and just like the, the tr- treatment of immigrants in this country, like yeah. well before it was on people's minds. Um, so I guess like, how, how does it feel to see some of these issues that you've been like aware of for a bit longer coming to be more, in the main uh I mean, in the mainstream now it's great i mean i think that uh, again it's hard to say that you know there's a silver lining to like trumpism and like what we've all been living through but i think if it's anything it's that and it's yeah it's younger kids getting more involved at an earlier age and and more active and you know using whatever the tools at their disposal to organize themselves and you know they're they're not as apathetic as I think I remember me and my friends being at certain ages, mm-hmm. you know, and that's very encouraging. Um, I mean, the the immigration situation, you know, that was uh, really important to me. My wife, uh, my ex-wife, but still like one of my best friends is from Mexico City. And that was when the, you know, SB 1070 was going on in Arizona, which, you know, the, you know, show me your papers law basically and trying to make make it more or less be like very difficult to be mexican in arizona which is like you're crazy have you ever been to arizona you know (laughs) that's an impossible ask um and uh so and then um you know uh there was a essentially a copycat law that they were you know because they started passing the same kind of law all over the country so there was one in this little town in Fremont, which is like right side outside of Omaha. And we ended up teaming up with the ACLU and putting on this big concert called like concert for equality, basically raised all this money, sued the shit out of this town to the point where they just couldn't enact the law. Um, and it's like, uh, there's like a lot of like meatpacking plants. There's a lot of like, you know, undocumented workers that live out there. So that was kind of a success. And I met like, uh, you know, Zach De La Rocha and Tom from Rage Against Machine. And oh, cool. we, we played, uh, I opened for Rage Against Machine at the Palladium. Um, it's actually one of the scariest things of my life in 2010. And they hadn't, they hadn't played a show in LA for like a long time. Yeah. And uh, the Palladium holds like, I think like maybe 4,000 people and Rage is good for like 40,000 people yeah. in LA. So there was like, right here cops surrounding the building with shields there's like helicopters holy shit um i mean it was like off it was just insane so the machine and showed up they they showed up big time <laughs> and then you know my band you know i gotta get up there with an acoustic guitar and like play like while like their fans are just like you know really ready to see rage against the machine play yeah. they weren't they weren't that stoked to see me up there but hey the band was happy to have me and uh yeah i mean and then the the uh the day before there was a press conference um also at the palladium you know and it was like a you know truly a traditional press conference like the the long tables um 
I don't know, it's probably like some of the most cameras I've ever seen in my life. There's like every news outlet, just cameras point at you. And it was, um, you know, yeah, Zach and Tom, a couple different lawyers. Um, uh, Dolores Suertes is like a, you know, she's a famous activist, like uh, just amazing. Um, and I'm just sitting there thinking, I'm just going to sit at this table and be like, hey. And like, it's like five minutes before. And Zach's like, oh, yeah, everyone's going to like, uh, everyone's going to like talk for like five minutes and like say like, well, I'm like, <laughs> like the most nervous I've like maybe ever been. Um, and I like scribbled some shit down really fast in a notebook. And like, I don't know, I, you know, I didn't talk that much, but I just was like, Hey, this is, this is my personal story. You know, this is like, what, this is what I believe in why I'm here. Basically. Yeah. And, and sorry, but, what was uh, the context for the press conference? I was for the, the raid show. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so they were, and that was raising money, um, to fight the, the, the SB 1070 law. So, um, and then where there was this whole thing called sound strike, which was basically getting bands to boycott playing there, which was pretty controversial. We, we ended up doing it, but I don't know, a lot of bands and promoters were upset. Like, don't, you know, if you want to make a difference, come here and play, that'll make more of a difference than not playing. But, you know, that's the way that like, that like Zach and Tom, that's the way they wanted to do it. So they organized it. They got, some pretty huge bands. Like it doesn't matter if my band plays in Arizona or not, but they were getting not only bands, but they were getting like, you know, whole conventions to cancel. And they were like actually making a, you know, an economic, you know, causing economic damage, yeah. which sometimes that's the only way you get, um, you get them to listen to you at all, you know? Yeah. And then yeah, not to mention Sheriff Joe and all that insanity. Um, yeah, no, I mean that, that's uh, that's pretty badass. Um, and yeah, Sheriff Joe since been pardoned by Trump, uh, absolute <laughs> monster, like one of the worst humans alive. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a, an amazing interview with this uh, tuning the news. Uh, it's like a Stephen Colbert thing where they have cartoon characters to, like play news anchors, and they interview <laughs> Sheriff Joe, and they're just like calling him like uh, like talking about his atrocities to his face. And just like mm. calling him an absolute monster, and he's just like sitting there, like, "What the fuck am I doing?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, like a commercial, like <laughs> making fun of him. Like he's like, "Are you using my name in a commercial?" The whole thing is incredible. Um, I gotta check that out. Yeah, I can send you a link. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it. I thought that was that was very cool. Um, there was another lyric um, from Des- Desaparecitos. Uh, you have a, a line like, "If one must die to save the ninety nine, maybe it's justified." The left is right. <laughs> We're doomed. Um, off the first track, the left is right. And mm-hmm. I'm guessing this is like a 1%, 99% dichotomy. Yeah, it was, you know, obviously Occupy Wall Street wasn't that old. I mean, that, that album's weird because we we hadn't been a band for a long time and then we started putting out like these seven inches. So the first one, the Maricopa one was, you know, whatever year that would have been. Yeah, something like that. And then we were sort of, so we we're like writing these songs over like a period of time. So it is like kind of encapsulates, you know, I guess like five years of things that, you know, we were thinking about and that was, you know, in the news and, and whatnot. Um, you know, and I was like such a, you know, obviously such a huge Obama supporter. I played like the primary, I met him actually, um, on January 1st in 2008 in a, in a classroom in Iowa, cause we were like playing rallies for him. And he like walked in, um, 
you know, by himself into this room. There was probably like five of us standing in there. And he was like, yeah, he was so funny because it's, you know, it's New Year's Day morning. He's like, I'd like to thank you for coming out on a day of recovery. Like we must, <laughs> we must have looked like hammered dog shit. But we were there like eight in the morning to like play for him. Um, and that was like, you know, I was, I remember like running out in the streets. We were, we were in Boston um, on tour. I mean, we took the night off, but the 91, like we were, like we heard like people like singing in the streets. We're, like we look out the window, we like run down you know, there's that big uh, reflecting pool kind of uh, by Harvard and, and stuff in Boston. Mm-hmm. And we're like, like there's pictures of it. Like we're all like in the water with like hundreds of people. People are like on everyone's shoulders. It's like, it just felt so amazing and incredible. And I still think that he's amazing and incredible and probably will go down. as like one of the best presidents, but he started doing things that I, you know, obviously mostly with, uh, you know, foreign policy decisions, like all the drone strikes and all the deportations. I don't know. There was a level of me that f- started to feel betrayed, you know? And so there's a little bit of that kind of messaging. I feel like on that record, like that's kind of like what that song underground man's about where they just like slowly like strip you of all your idealism. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but then, yeah, then now it's just like, I can't even, I would give anything for Obama to be president again. You know, like I can't believe I was upset for a second about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I definitely, I have a bit of a different view on Obama's impact and legacy. I, I, I do think like, especially with how the financial crisis was handled, there was like a yeah. huge missed opportunity there. Um, and it's like, you know, going, bailing out, you know, the, not the mortgage yeah. holders, but instead the banks and, and like yeah. making explicit decisions to not like help people whose houses were underwater. I, I think that seeded yeah. a lot of the uh, animosity and the anger that kind of like there's a through line from that to Trump. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, there was, um, I mean, you know, his coziness with Wall Street and corporate America is obviously not in dispute at all. Um, yeah, I guess it's, you know, whatever they say, it's the art of negotiation or compromise or what do they say about politics? All that. It sucks. Um, but yeah, and and I guess like I, this lyrics stuck out to me a little bit as well. Um, because like, you know, I, I'd imagine you were a part of the 1%. Um, and, and do you feel any like tension, like being, you know, personally very successful, um, and, and doing good things with, with your, with your fame and and music, but like still like, you know, having resources that a lot of people don't. Yeah. I mean, do I feel, I don't know if I feel guilty about it. Um, but I do feel an obligation to, you know, help people as much as I can. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I should probably do more, you know, I think everyone could, could do more, Yeah. you know, especially with their, with their money. But, you know, I've always tried to put my money where my mouth is and I've tried to, you know, use whatever platform I have to kind of advance, the way I think about the world. But yeah, I mean, um, I, 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 I am part of the 1%, I'm sure. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, I feel like it, it's a, it's a, it's a strange thing. Cause I, I don't know, for lack of a better word, I feel like I paid my dues. You know what I mean? I like slept on all the floors and I did all the shitty tours and like mm-hmm. I earned, I earned my money, but at the same time, you know, I look around and I see people that just didn't have the, you know, 
didn't have that kind of opportunity or that privilege to be able to have those experiences. And yeah, I think that's part of like the course correction that needs to happen in general in this country, you know, making it, making it more inclusive and making it easier for, for more people to, you know, follow whatever dreams they have, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think like, you know, obviously like education is like, you know, my mom was, a, she's retired now, but she was a principal in Omaha and worked really hard at like really poor schools and just seeing like how much, um, how much those people like give their lives to like trying to help kids and, you know, just all you know, like most of my family are like teachers. My brother was a teacher, you know, just like the, those little things where it's like they're spending their own money to like buy, you know, whatever school supplies. For their kids. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's like heartbreaking. It's like our priorities are so upside down. Yeah. Um, that it's really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally agree. Um, I heard a story the other day about in Kansas, they elected a bunch of local libertarians around the state and uh, teachers there were working as teachers to get like health insurance and then like working at Walmart mm-hmm. or something to like, actually make enough money to pay their bills. And that's just insane. Totally. Yeah, exactly. When, when like the richest people in, in the country, like literally just push money around, yeah. you know, yeah. and don't provide any real tangible good in the world <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it, it, the net worth of like zuckerberg and bezos has gone up by tens of billions of dollars since the pandemic started yeah. Um, yeah yeah no it's it's unsustainable yeah i mean amazon yeah they're definitely the biggest winner of this whole thing yeah seems yeah. like yeah, yeah. I, i'm guilty of it as well uh <laughs> it's yeah it's very convenient i i wish uh there were better options um but like yeah this is what politics yeah. is for, right like we solve the collective yeah. action problem together yeah um yeah, I want to talk a bit about uh, the Iraq war and uh, your opposition to it back like when it actually kind of meant something. Um, I think it's nowadays you know, pretty much universally agreed upon to be like this huge mistake. It's like too light of a word. I think it was like a massive crime, but uh, there's like a collective sense of regret for, for this decision. Um, but at the time, it was like so overwhelmingly supported um, in media, yes. politics, and just like in the public. Um, but you, you were, yeah. you know, Act, speaking out against it um what, what did that look like for you and like what were some of the responses like at the time um you know it it's it, it definitely wasn't a very popular stance when you when you if i think of it as like a the whole country and certainly um you know in nebraska but you know i i, I will also say i was um like i said kind of living in the liberal bubble of New York city. And so the people I was talking to and hanging out with, it's not like we had tons of disagreements about it. You know, we were pretty united that it was a bad idea, but yeah, you, you start to, I mean, I'm always blown away when people like my band or come to my shows and then get upset. If I, you know, go on some kind of political rant from stage. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, we're like, who did you guys think you were coming to? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) It's just like, really? Yeah. Like, have you, like maybe, maybe they only have heard first day of my life, you know, and yeah. that's all they know, which is <laughs> possible. Um, but so, yeah, that always kind of blows my mind. I mean, I guess the biggest, um, some of the biggest, like, I guess negative reaction is I played that when the president talks to God song on the Jay Leno show. Yeah. And that, um, you know, got a lot of, 
a lot of uh, hate mail um, when uh, when I when we did the concert for equality, like I was telling you in Omaha, there was people uh, dropping death threats in my uh, actual um, mailbox. Oh wow! Because um, I have you know I, I like I'm just a fence in front of my house, and they're like like well you just want to let everyone jump the wall. What if I, what if I jump your fence and oh, come man. into your house? And then, so like for like three days around that, um, yeah, my friend, my mom, because of all the school and like philanthropy stuff in Omaha is friends with Susie Buffett is Warren, is Warren Buffett's daughter who does, you know, whatever, gives a lot of money away anyway. So she, she, she loaned me their like, uh, they're like Navy SEAL security guard guy for like a few days um, so that I, uh, you know, wouldn't get shot while we were doing the outdoor concert. So there's a couple times like that where it's it feel it's like all of a sudden it feels pretty real. Yeah. And you're like, wow, OK, I, I'm I'm pushing some buttons, you know. Yeah. Um, and we actually ended up this first just ended up making a. <laughs> There's a great piece of merch um, that we made um, from that show, which is there was there was protesters, not that many of them. You know, there's thousands of people that came to the the show, um, but there was like the handful of protesters across the street, mm-hmm. and and one of them was holding up a deport Connor Overs sign, and <laughs> like no shit, it, it's my friend Tim Casher, who's like the singer of that band Cursive. Mm-hmm. It's like they didn't even get their Google search right. It said deport Tim or it said deport Connor over a picture of Tim. Oh my god. Um, that's so funny. <laughs> and so we made t-shirts of that with a picture of Tim. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah. That, that that's really good. That's a that's a deep, deep cut, but anybody who like yeah. understands it would think that's fucking hilarious. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Um and, and yeah, when you played uh When the President Talks to God, which is about George Bush on on Leno, was there a pushback? Like uh they, they wanted you to play first day of my life, right? Yeah. It just like it slowly like went up the ladder. Um just they were like, No, you can't play that song, play this other song and we we're like, Okay, well we're not gonna play and then it's like another phone call, like, No, you should really play the song and it's like, uh, we're still not gonna play and it just you know, said no like three times and then whoever the you know, the kind of head producer uh I guess changed their mind. Um and then I went in there and Jay was actually really nice. He like came, which, you know, they don't always like talk to you that much. Mm-hmm. All the T all the TV hosts, you know, I've, I've played like all of them at this point, but he was really sweet. He like came in and was like really happy you're doing this. And like kind of told me like a story about like when him and his like comedian buddies were like protesting the Vietnam war. And anyway, he was very uh, kind and um, made me, feel good about being there like a lot of people are like did you surprise them it's like that's not how tv works yeah uh, they, they have the lyrics ahead of time right and, well yeah and and they tape the show at four in the afternoon oh that's right it's, so it's like there's no real like uh you know maybe saturday night live you can like it's like live but yeah every every other show they know exactly what you're gonna do and if they want to cut it later they can yeah. you know so they in the end they agreed to it and then it was it was funny because i um you know i sound checked um, in like my little black hoodie or whatever I was wearing. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I was like, I felt so nervous. And I, I remember talking to him on the phone with my mom and my tour manager at the time, I was like, 
I was like, Bill, I think I need a cowboy suit like ASAP, you know, <laughs> and we're, and we're in, we're in Los Angeles. So he gets one like delivered in like an hour and I put that baby on all the rhinestones and the hat. And I was like, now I'm ready. Now I can do this. And yeah, my thought was like how amazing it'd be like some guy like in middle America with like the sound kind of down on his TV being mm-hmm. like, like, honey, turn this up. This looks like a fine outstanding young man. Let's, <laughs> let's give him a little volume here. Oh my God. <laughs> Undercover. No, I, it really works. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's awesome. Um, yeah, no, I, I thought that was, that was very cool. Um, and I don't know. It's like, you know, as a song, I, I, I think um, you said it's like not even a song you think is that like, that interesting, right? But at the moment, it, it felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it's really just like a commercial for like a way to think about things. You know, I mean, it's like a, I guess in the tradition of like, you know, like a talking blues song, you know, it's yeah. like two chords and just not much of a melody. So, yeah, it's not like a, it's not the uh, pinnacle of my songwriting uh, <laughs> career or anything, but um at the time, it felt like important yeah. to do. I guess. Yeah, I, yeah. I was thinking about this. I, I, I kind of think there's like a trade-off between like how political music can be and like how artistically interesting it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, like the band Flowbots has a song "Handlebars" that's like super popular, and it's like uh-huh. a fairly subtle metaphor for the Bush administration that you like wouldn't even get from like listening to it. Uh, uh-huh. And then they have like other songs that are like they just list out policies that they want to see enacted. <laughs> it's just like you know harder to misinterpret, uh, but it's like you know not not as interesting. And like "Born in the USA" is like when maybe the most famous example of this, right? Where it's like seen yeah. as like patriotic song, but it's actually yeah. like a Vietnam War protest song. And like constantly, yeah. yeah. Like if you want your stuff to be understood, it just won't be as good. I think. Yeah, well, that's I've always thought was amazing. Uh, I mean, not to keep talking about raging as machine, but that's what I thought was amazing as a as a kid in high school because i i did not have the same musical taste of most of the people in my high school i didn't Mm -hmm. really like what was on the radio but that was like one band we could everyone could kind of agree on and like you know like the bros liked it and you know it was like aggressive enough to whatever but i just thought that was so was, was so genius about that band is it's so subversive lyrically but when you put it on like when some kid takes it home to their like suburban home and puts it on and they don't at first they don't realize that they're like being doc, you know, being indoctrinated with like <laughs> pretty like far left politics. Yeah. Um, they're just like, like killing in the name of, yeah, you yeah. know? Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's, and there's other, like another one of my, Oh, you know, kind of all time favorite bands is like the clash. Mm. Same thing. Same thing with the clash. It's like, those are just awesome pop songs. And then you realize what they're singing about. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's cool. Yeah. When you can do it, when you can get, when you can have your cake and eat it too, it's, it can be really cool. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's funny what people get. Um, like, do you remember that song? I don't know how many years ago it was, but there was like, it was called, I can't remember the name of the band, like, like, like pumped up kicks. Oh or yeah. Something pumped like up that. kicks by Foster the people. Okay. Yeah. There, yeah. Shooter, like, yeah and, like, and it was like, I remember it was like getting a like, band from the radio and all this. And I'm like, I'm like, listen to the song. It's like, I can't even tell what this is about yeah, yeah. at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm, it's cool that they did it, but I just was like, I, I don't know. He's talking about some shoes and maybe he says the word gun, but <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I like see, see all the other kids like, yeah, better run, better run outrun my gun. Um, yeah. 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 No, that's, there's like a whole class of songs that like sound really like nice and kind of schmaltzy and like are actually very dark and, and uh, disturbing mm-hmm. in their content. Yeah. 
Yeah, we had a school. We have a, a shooter, active shooter song on the Desperacitos record, which also actually happened at the at the Von Mar in Omaha. And this guy Phil, who was like our guitar tech for uh, years, um, his brother got shot in it. Oh, lived. Wow. He's, um, but yeah, that kid killed like nine people. Yeah, it was it was like Christmas time at the mall, and uh, Phil's brother was walking with his his wife, like their kids weren't there. They were like Christmas shopping for their kids. And the, the, the kids start shooting. He, he, he had been separated from his wife. He sees this other woman who's like pregnant. Oh my God. He hides her in like a dressing room. And then he goes back out to look for his wife. And only at that point, does he realize that he's been shot? Holy shit. You know? Wow. It was, it was crazy. And like, yeah, he ended up being on like CNN and all this stuff. And like, telling his story. And I mean, that whole thing is, you know, that's another, I mean, jumping topics here, but yeah, the, the, uh, just the hypocrisy of, of, um, you know, young white males that kill more people than, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, uh, religiously motivated attack in America, you know, yeah. and the fact that they can't even like utter the word like domestic terrorists when it, when it comes to this, all these, all these things, you know, yeah. and especially, especially with all like the white power uh, shit that's going on now. It's like, I mean, if, if those, I mean, if the, if the people that are, you know, had the plot to, to kidnap the governor, if those aren't domestic terrorists, then what the hell are, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it, I've, <laughs> I've actually heard some interesting interpretations of, of that specific yeah. situation because like, <clears throat> You know, there's a strand of the left that is like, we don't want to expand the definition of who a terrorist is because mm-hmm. you can like justify anything, right? You a lot of shit. torture, sure, to find the sure. Terror bomb. Um, and there's like a lot of cases of the FBI kind of like entrapping people, like getting you know a young Muslim kid to like mm-hmm. be interested in like ISIS or whatever, like arresting sure. them and then saying, hey, we caught a terrorist, and like that helps juice their stats. Yeah. So, yeah, but, like yeah, it's no. really not good to try and kidnap like. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just talk about like, a, you know, sound like a pretty organized situation, you know, like these paramilitary groups. It's like, you know, that's not a deranged young kid um, that's confused about whatever ideology they read about on the Internet. You know, that's like grown ass men with like warehouses full of like, you know, military grade uh, weaponry yeah. <laughs> and like they go out and like train in the woods. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, no, it's, it's that's terrifying. A, that sounds like an, or, that sounds like an organization to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, there's a lot of discussion on the left of like political violence mm. and like whether it's justified and it's like, well mm. guys, if you haven't been paying attention, like they have all the guns, <laughs> yeah. all the people that know how to use them. And uh, yeah. I don't know if that's like a norm we want to change too much. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good point. I come to a uh, Saddle Creek, the, record label that you helped start um you're not you actually the most recent bright eyes album didn't come out through saddle creek right mm-hmm. and so yeah. this kind of it started to be like a communal project but it's now a bit different right yeah um it's a it's a long story and i you know i don't want to talk shit on like any of my old friends or anything like that but yeah it started very much um as a collective um literally like pooling our money from mowing lawns and putting out our, our friends, seven inches. And, you know, this is like 1993. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the year I was born. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then it like, you know, it, we were very lucky it built from there. We, you know, things got more successful, but it was always like, you know, completely independent. I can't tell you how many times or how much time I spent like stuffing envelopes and trying to get people to care at all about what we were doing. Um, but uh, yeah. And then got kind of, it was, we sort of benefited because the internet was kind of breaking, but people still bought a lot of CDs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So we were lucky to, you know, make a lot of money on our own terms, you know, not just my band, but like I said, cursive, this band, the faint, a lot of the bands that, um, you know, that were on the label and, you know, we kind of had like a voting system and there was no real A and R like we, the other bands we signed were just bands that uh, like all the bands on the label would go on tour and then they would meet someone on tour, become friends. And then it's like, can we put out your record? Like, that's how we met like Ryan Kiley and like the, you know, the kids out here in LA. It's like, um, I'm saying kids, all these people are like 40 years old, but um, <laughs> uh, anyway, and like, like it goes with money. It's like at some point, you know, one of our friends kind of ended up, magically with all his name on the paperwork and Mm. stuff started getting weird. And, and then the, we just like a lot of the band myself included and a lot of the main bands, once we kind of realized what was going on, we everyone was just like, fuck it. And we started putting out, putting out records on other labels basically. Um, and there's, you know, lawyers and contracts and, you know, all of, again, like, the idealism, you know, we grew up loving like discord, you know, like Fugazi's label in DC, who was like, can be more ethical than like the way they ran their program or like merge, like from North Carolina, you know, those were our idols of what we wanted our label to be like. And we really, we pulled it off for like a a lot of years, but um, yeah, it gets messy when people start making money and start uh, having managers and having, you know, whatever. Yeah. Gets, it gets harder to keep that, uh, that idealism and that innocence intact. Yeah. Like what, what do you think like a music industry in a, you know, post-capitalist society could look like, like how would it be different from how it is now? I mean, post-capitalist society. I mean, are we talking just like burning man. Is it just like a barter system? <laughs> no, it's like, like, I don't but know. I, like I gotta give, full socialism. I'll give, like, no. I'll give, I'll give you some shoestrings <laughs> and then I get your record. Uh, <laughs> no, um, I don't know. That's a great question. I mean, I think that if, if you look at kind of um, uh, sort of the democratic socialist model of like, um, you know, Scandinavia and I mean, even Canada to a certain degree, um, I was always blown away by just the support for the arts that are there where it's like these bands that were, um, you know, not, um, I, I would say no more popular or relevant than any of our bands, but somehow like the, the, the government's giving them grants mm. to like make their records. And there's like a venue that's like, you can play that's like a, basically like a squat, you know, and like all these cool things that like only exist in other countries. Yeah. Like they don't exist here. So, I mean, I guess that's not, I don't know exactly what kind of world you're, you're looking at having, but even stuff like that, I mean, even having like just more support 
for the arts and being able to, um, yeah, like not make it all about what makes the most money. Like see, see art as like a, you know, more of a, you know, whatever, a, a service for humankind that like makes society better. Yeah. You know, a global public even, good. Uh, exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I think about like a, if there was a basic income, like how much more art there would be. And like a lot of it would be really mm. shitty. Um, but mm. like a lot of it would be really good too. And like, you know, mm. richer countries just produce like per capita, like more successful bands um, because they can just support like people doing, you know, quote unquote, like not useful things or not productive activities. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be. Are you are you into that idea? Like, uh, basic income? Like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I work at a nonprofit, yeah. and we are actually like doing the world's largest uh, basic income uh, experiment in Kenya right now. Um, cool. Yeah, so I'm, I'm still like you know uh, open to counter arguments, but I, I do think it's like yeah. a, a good way to help people out and like unlock you know a lot more potential in people, and and also just like basic human dignity. Like we all deserve yeah. to have like the basic things in life at the very least. I I totally agree with you. I mean, it seems like a knowing how like backwards everything is, it seems like a wild thing to try to implement in the United States, but I would love it if we could do it. Yeah. That'd be, you know what I mean? Yeah. That'd, it would be, be great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to like close out, um, you know, I, I'm also a songwriter and you've been an inspiration for me. Um, and hey. it's, uh, I'm like a wordy, you know, folk rock, like lyrics kind of driven person with like, uh, unconventional voice. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, Sounds like we're the same. <laughs> I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't go that far. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been cool to see, like, uh, you have this influence on like a whole generation of musicians that are coming up now. Obviously Phoebe Bridgers, uh, has collaborated with you a bunch of times and then also like little peep um and post malone and young thug like all these guys have like sampled you or cited you in some way um Uh, how does it feel to be kind of like a kind of godfather now of like a next generation uh, of music makes me feel old no it's (laughs) it's great i I think um you know i think that that's how music should work you know i i had a lot of uh people i looked up to and um you know felt supported by or included and um took inspiration from and so yeah i think that if 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 my music can do that for other people like that's a very um rewarding thing you know yeah. it's like can't can uh yeah i love it and it's cool when it's not um you know like if it's like when it's like hip-hop stuff or things that are kind of out of our like general wheelhouse that's even cooler because it's like wow that's i wasn't seeing that one coming you know yeah yeah i mean it, it does seem like i don't know if i were to pitch you to somebody who didn't know yourself like uh you know 20 year old or something like oh like you know Malone like likes it <laughs> and you know, right. like <laughs> and stuff like i think that would be yeah. a way of connecting with like the the new generation and nfb is obviously like very popular as well yeah but much more in the same like vein as bright eyes yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's tons of, um, you know, I mean, obviously having the band with her and and just also like, you know, I never I never want to be like the cynical, like old rock guy. You know what I mean? Like that's like so annoying. And like I think there's always going to be new music and some of it, some of it blows by me and I don't really understand it. And then some of it sticks and it's like, so fun and rewarding to discover a new band that 
I hadn't heard of or a new artist. And like, yeah, I think the best way to do that is like, I don't know, like you're not, I don't, I'm not much like on the internet or like following like music blogs. And so the way that I normally find out about new music is just through, through friends, basically like word of mouth, you know, and yeah, found out about a lot of, um, newer bands just from kind of like the, the people that I've been playing with out here, you know, that are all like whatever, 10 years younger than me. Yeah. And any recent uh, favorites? Um, well, I guess, I guess she's not exactly new, but, um, I'm really, I've been saying like my favorite record this year is, um, that you ever hear that band Waxahachie. Yeah. They're really, I saw them at Bonnaroo. Uh, really good. Yeah. 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 I love that record. That's been like, that's been on like steady rotation. Um, my, uh, my friend that played, who played in better oblivion with us, this guy, uh, Christian Lee Hudson just made a really cool record. Um, obviously Phoebe's record's awesome, but yeah, it's like, it, it's been such a crazy year to try to put out music. It's like, I feel, I feel so bad for young bands and like, you know, you know, there's so many of them out there that were like, we get a play South by Southwest this year or whatever, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. It's, uh, it's a tough time, but I think, um, it's got to get better and hopefully, I don't know. I love live music so much that, I mean, all this stuff, all these like online concerts, it's, it's, it's great. And it's, I guess like, of it's like helping like fill the void a little bit, but I, I, it's, it's funny. Like there's this place, the bootleg theater here in town that like, for whatever reason, like would end up there. One of my friends or somebody would be playing there like twice a week, you know? And it's like, God, like I really don't feel like going to the bootleg tonight. Like, but you know, so-and-so is playing, so I should probably go. And now it's like, I'd give my right arm to go see (laughs) even like a kind of shitty band at a, kind of shady club not bootlegs not shady but you know what yeah. i mean like just just, I would, yeah i would love it i'd be like i'd be like over the moon just to like see a band play so yeah. hopefully won't be too long yeah i i feel you i i also like love live music and and festivals and uh i think that's like the thing i've missed the most because you can still see friends outside and like you can capture some yeah. of the normal things in life but like the the big communal experience where everyone's just like having a really good time, you know, with the assistance of uh, some chemicals and some music. Uh, it's just it's yeah. pretty special. I, I agree. I agree. Well, Connor, I know we're at an hour. Um, is there anything else you wanted to touch on? Um, no, I think you did a great job. Thanks so much for talking to me. Well, thank you. It was interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much for yeah. taking the time. Yeah. All right. Be well, my friend. This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoy this show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. This helps new people find the podcast and validates my self-worth. If you don't enjoy the show, please keep your thoughts to yourself or email me at mostinterestingpeople27 at gmail.com. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Babrowitz.